Section 7. Francis Called to be a Saint. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. God's interpreter art thou, to the waiting ones below, twixt them and its light midway heralding the better day. We have seen Francis as a young man, gay, careless, pleasure-loving, kind-hearted, a leader at every feast and revel, known to his companions as a thorough good fellow. We have watched the first strivings of the Holy Spirit in his soul, and marked his earnest attempts to follow the light that then began to penetrate his hitherto dark soul. We have followed that glimmering light with him, step by step, seen him persecuted, mocked, stoned, beaten, watched his lonely wilderness wrestlings when there was no human eye to pity, no human arm to succor. We have seen, too, how little by little this thorny pathway led to a closer and more intimate acquaintance with God, for which acquaintance Francis counted his sufferings as nothing and the world well lost. Francis was not an extraordinary character in any sense of the word. He was what he was simply and solely by the grace of God, which is ever free for all men. He was not a man created for the hour. He was a vessel, cleansed and emptied, and thus fit for the master's use, and God used him, as he always uses such vessels. The whole secret of his sainthood lay in his simple, loving, implicit obedience. Not the lifeless obedience that one renders to inexorable law, but the heartfelt, passionate desire to serve, and to anticipate the lightest want of the one object of the affections. That baptism of personal love for God and union with Christ was poured out upon Francis in the black hour of what looked to him complete failure. When hunted and pursued, he sought refuge from his angry friends in the caves of the earth. The gift that he then received he never ceased to guard and cherish. And other blessings were added to it, for God has promised, To him that hath it shall be given. And God gave liberally, good measure, pressed down and running over. But the gifts which were Francis are ours, too, by right of divine grace, to be had for the faithful seeking, and kept by pure, faithful, and obedient living, called to be saints. The few one here and there in every century? Oh, no. Called to be saints are the myriad souls who have received the divine touch of regeneration. This is the calling and election of the redeemed, but oh, how few there are that make them sure. Five years had now elapsed since that spring morning, when, weak and ill from fever, Francis dragged himself out of doors to look again on the glorious landscape that he thought would bring him health and healing. The story of his disappointment we have already told. 
During those five years, Francis made gigantic strides in heavenly wisdom and knowledge, and we feel that we cannot do better than to pause in our narrative and try to give you some idea of the spiritual personality of the man, whose name even now the people were beginning to couple with that of Saint. In appearance, Francis was a thorough Italian. He was rather below than over the ordinary height. His eyes and hair were dark, and his bearing free and gracious. He was chiefly remarkable for his happy, joyous expression. This he never lost. Even when illness had robbed him of his good looks, the light in his eyes and the smile on his lips were always the same. The most striking points of Francis' character are perhaps his humility, his sincerity, and his childlike simplicity. Humble, Francis was not by nature. There was nothing in his training to make him so, and everything that would tend to the growth of pride and arrogance. But, with his conversion, humility became one of his strongest convictions. He truly considered himself less than the least, and he held it to be an offense against God if he ever let himself, or his little feelings and prejudices, stand in the way of accomplishing what he believed to be for the extension of the kingdom. It seemed as though he had no feelings to be hurt. What most people would call justifiable sensitiveness, Francis would call sin. He went straight to the mark, and if he did not accomplish all he wanted to at first, he simply tried again, and generally succeeded sooner or later. In places where the friars were not known, Francis often found it a little difficult to get permission to preach in the churches. At a place called Imola, for instance, where he went to ask the bishop for the use of the church, the bishop replied, coldly and distantly, My brother, I preach in my own parish. I am not in need of anyone to aid me in my task. Francis bowed and went out. An hour later he presented himself again. What have you come for again? asked the bishop angrily. What do you want? My lord, answered Francis in his simple way, when a father turns his son out of one door, the son has but one thing to do, to return by another. This holy boldness won the bishop's heart. You are right, he said. You and your brothers may preach in my diocese. I give you a general permission to do so. Your humility deserves nothing less. Francis never considered himself at liberty to shake the dust of a city off his feet unless he had tried and tried again and again to get a hearing there. Indeed, nothing convinced him of the uselessness of his quest unless he were thrown out neck and crop. Then it was more than likely he would gather himself up and try another entrance. He entirely forgot himself in his love for his master. His love of truth was with him almost a passion. Between his thoughts and his words and his actions, 
there was a perfect agreement. Neither one contradicted the other. He saw to it that it was so, knowing that nothing hurt the gospel of Christ like insincerity or double-dealing. Distractions in prayer he looked upon as secret lies and saying with the lips what the heart did not go with. How shameful, he used to say, to allow oneself to fall into vain distractions when one is addressing the great king. We should not speak in that manner even to a respectable man. On one occasion he had carved a little olive-wood vase, probably meaning to sell it for food. But while at prayer one day, some thought connected with this work came into his mind, distracting his soul for the moment. Instantly he was full of contrition, and as soon as he left his prayer, hastened to put his vase into the fire, where never again it could come between his soul and God. One day, on meeting a friend on the road, they stopped to converse. On parting, the friend said, "'You will pray for me?' To which Francis replied, "'Willingly.' Hardly was the other out of sight when Francis said to his companion, "'Wait a little for me. I am going to kneel down and discharge the obligation I have just contracted.' This was always his habit. Instead of promising and forgetting, as so many do, he never rested till he had fulfilled the promise he had made. During the last two years of his life he was often very weak and ailing. One cold winter, his companion, seeing that the clothes he was wearing were very thin and patched, was filled with compassion on his account. He secretly got a piece of fox skin. My father, he said, showing him the skin, you suffer very much from your liver and stomach. I beg of you, let me sew this fur under your tunic. If you will not have it all, let it at least cover your stomach. I will do what you wish, said Francis, but you must sew as large a piece outside as in. His companion couldn't see any sense in this arrangement and objected very strongly. The reason is quite plain, said Francis. The outside piece will show everybody that I allow myself this comfort. They had to give in at last, and Francis had his way. Oh, admirable man, writes a friend after his death, thou hast always been the same within and without, in words and in deeds, below and above. On another occasion he tore off his tunic, because, for a brief moment of weakness, he harbored the thought that he might have led an easier life and still serve God. Like other men, he might have had a settled home and lived a tranquil existence. It was a passing temptation, but Francis, tearing off his coarse garment, emblem of the cross that he strove to follow, cried, It is a religious habit. A man given up to such thoughts would be a robber if he wore it. Nor did he put it on again till he felt he could do so with a pure heart and clean conscience. With the crystal transparency of his inner and outer life, 
went a simplicity that was akin to that of a little child. His sermons and addresses were of the very simplest and plainest. Though Francis was undoubtedly one of the orators of the age, his fiery words and burning language were such that even the most unlearned could easily follow. His theme was simply Christ, and Christ crucified for our sins, and an exhortation to repentance and holy living. Learned ones pondered his words and marveled wherein lay his power, little dreaming that his very plainness of speech was his strength. His delight in the beauties of nature never left him. Sunset and sunrise, mountain and plain, river and sea alike filled him with joy, and all spoke to him of the glory of God. Flowers always gave him special pleasure. He insisted that his disciples should always reserve some portion of their gardens for the growth of flowers as well as vegetables, to give them a foretaste of the eternal sweetness of heaven. When the brethren went to the fields to chop wood, Francis always warned them to take care of the roots, so that the trunk might sprout again and live. To take life of any kind was intolerable to him. For this reason he always lifted the worms out of his path and laid them at the side of the road, lest an incautious traveler might crush them. His love and power over animals are almost too well known to need mention. He always spoke of them as his brothers and sisters. He disdained nothing. All were to him alike, beautiful because the work of his God. For a long time he had a tame sheep that followed him about wherever it could get a chance. This sheep always seemed to know exactly how to behave under all circumstances. When the brethren knelt at prayers, it knelt too. When they sang, it joined in with a not-too-loud little bleat. Near his room at the portion Kula, there lived a grasshopper in a fig vine. This little insect would hop on his finger at his bidding, and when told to sing and praise the Lord, used to chirp with all its might. Birds, insects, and even fishes and wild animals, we are told, all recognized in Francis a friend, and readily did his bidding. Francis' love for God was supreme, and his belief that God loved him never wavered. To make people love and know God was his one burning desire. It was not so much God's service he delighted in as God himself. He never lost sight of the Master in the work, and to a large extent this was the key to all his success. His work was the outcome of his love. After we have received, the first natural impulse is to give. Francis possessed two small mites, an ancient historian writes. They were his body and his soul. He gave them both, bravely and freely, according to his custom. Whatever came, joy, sorrow, success, failure, pain, weariness, sickness, insult, or favor, 
Francis took as direct from the hand of God and blessed him for all. Why shouldn't he? His heart was right. He had the assurance that his ways pleased God, and his faith was not dependent upon knowledge. He was content, nay, glad, to trust where he could not see, confident in the belief that nothing could hurt a sanctified soul. His disciples could not always follow him so far. Some of them, when they saw their master suffering, as he did suffer severely in his last days, thought that God might have led his beloved home by a less painful road. One of them once gave expression to his feelings thus, Ah, my brother, pray to the Lord that he may treat you more gently. Truly, he ought to let his hand weigh less heavily upon you. Hurt to the quick as well as indignant, Francis cried, What is that you are saying? If I did not know your simplicity, I should henceforth hold you in horror. What? You have the audacity to blame God's dealings with me? Then, throwing himself on his knees, he prayed, O oh, my Lord God, I give thee thanks for all these pains I endure. I pray thee to send me a hundredfold more, if such be thy good pleasure. I willingly accept all afflictions. Thy holy name is my superabundant joy. Nothing could ever make Francis say that anything in his lot was very hard. His love was too loyal, his trust too complete. Joy was one of his cardinal articles of faith. Rejoice always was a divine command, and one not to be overlooked. As a young man he had been of a bright, joyous nature, but easily plunged into depths of sadness and melancholy. God taught him upon what to base his joy, and when he had torn down all earthly external devices, led him to derive his all from the true source. He held joy to be the normal state of those whom God loves, the fruit of Christian life without which everything languishes and dies. The devil, Francis always said, carries dust with him, and whenever he can, he throws it into the openings of the soul in order to cloud the clearness of its thoughts and the purity of its actions. If joy knows how to defend itself and subsist, then he has had his spite for nothing. But if the servant of Christ becomes sad, bitter, or unhappy, he is sure to triumph. Sooner or later, that soul will be overwhelmed by its sadness or will seek for false joys or consolations. The servant of God who is troubled for any reason Francis always allowed that causes for trouble in this world are innumerable, must immediately have recourse to prayer and remain in the presence of his heavenly Father till the joy of salvation has been restored to him. Otherwise, his sadness will increase and engender a rust in the soul. This duty of cheerfulness Francis impressed upon all with whom he had to do. My brother, he said to a friar of doleful countenance one day, If thou hast some fault to mourn, do it in secret. Groan and weep before God, 
but here with thy brethren be as they are in tone and countenance. His conviction of this duty was so strong that during one large gathering of fires he had this advice written in large letters and posted up. Let the brethren avoid ever appearing somber, sad, and clouded, like the hypocrites, but let them always be found joyful in the Lord, gay, amiable, gracious, as is fitting. Amiability and graciousness he also considered amongst the virtues. Courtesy, he called it. And courtesy, he always said, was akin to Charity, her younger sister, who was to go with the elder one and help to open all hearts to her. An historian writes thus of Francis, He was very courteous and gracious in all things, and possessed a peace and serenity that nothing could disturb. This sympathy and benevolence was expressed on his countenance. His face had in it something angelic. His songs and hymns were the outcome of his perpetual joy in the Lord. In those days there were no popular religious hymns or songs. People praised God in Latin with psalms and chants. Francis never found that these gave vent to his feelings and so, with the help of one of the brothers, Pacificus, a trained musician, he began to write his own. And soon, wherever the friars passed, they left a train of simple melody in their wake. It was Francis and his brethren who first turned the Italian language into poetry, and gave it that impetus which has since rendered it the typical language for song. End of section 7. Recording by Tom Hirsch.